This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Guest host Jane Brown in today. Libby returns soon from her vacation. Great to be here with you. We are going to address today's hot topic closer to the bottom of the hour. Provincial funding or lack of funding, as the case appears to be, for Toronto Public Health and how this will affect public health services in this city. So make sure you stick around for that. First, though, treating people the way you want others to treat you, regardless of age and station in life. Toronto City Council is moving forward with detailed plans to give emotion-focused care to the 2,600 residents of city-run nursing homes. City staff is to report back with a detailed plan for the culture change next fall. What is emotion-focused care? We've gone to our friends at CARP, A New Vision of Aging, to help us visualize what this looks and feels like. Laura Tamblin-Watts is CARP's Chief Public Policy Officer, and she joins me in studio. Thanks for walking down the hall. Happy to be here. It's always great to have you guys. CARP has been heavily involved in making this happen. Tell us about uh, the process that's been involved. We know that long-term care has to change. What's happening right now is really meeting nobody's needs. It's not economical. It's not good for the system. And most importantly, it's not good for the residents whose home they are. And we have been monitoring very closely the different ways that we can look at transforming long-term care. And as part of our national policy platform, our national seniors platform, we call the FACES of Canadian seniors, one of our key asks under the exceptional healthcare pillar was to implement emotion-based care. And what does it mean? It means you're putting the person first. It means getting rid of clinical-looking uh, environments, getting rid of the scrubs, getting rid of the white walls or the the green walls, and you know the ones I'm talking yes. about, and replacing it with warm, home-like environments. It means taking time to talk to people. It means getting rid of the institutionalization and bringing in the personalization. Well, this seems to be the evolution of society anyway, getting getting away from that, having more hands-on, having more real connection with people. I mean, we all know how much that benefits us regardless of our age, regardless of our education, our profession. We all want to feel connected to other people. It makes us feel good. It's the most important thing. And when we're looking at who's living in long-term care, who are the residents? Remember, these are their homes. The homes of these people tend to be people with significant cognitive impairment right. and a lot of physical fragility. And that's because these days you can't get into long-term care home, usually until you have these needs. So emotion-based care, transformative care, particularly focuses on persons with dementia or cognitive impairment. And what we see 
is remarkable. It reduces anxiety of the residents. It increases the well-being, and the well-being is measured not just by their physical well-being, but their emotional well-being. They're not lashing out the way that they would if they were in a scared or anxious base uh, state. And the residents are supported by people who have the time to take care. We know that there are very, very, very few guidelines for how long-term care staffing is done. Most people wouldn't realize there's only a requirement for one RN, no matter how many residents there are. And we've been advocating as well for more time spent with people and less time ticking off checklists. And what we're seeing is a huge transformation and staff like it more and are getting treated better themselves. So you you say there's a connection between staff and the residents, um, making the, even the color on the walls more warm, uh, how that can make a difference, maybe bringing in furniture that feels more like home, that kind of thing. But tell us what some of those connections would look like in terms of, of how uh, the residents would be involved with the staff in a different way. So we've taken such a risk aversion approach in Canada that we've taken away so much of what makes people tick. So, you know, no sharp objects, no way of getting your hands dirty, no way of actually engaging in life anymore. There was this sense that risk needed to be withdrawn to such a great degree. And yet, actually, long-term care homes are enormously risky places for other reasons. We know abuse is a real challenge. We know that people are being hit, whether they be staff members or residents. So this idea of trying to avert risk and kind of move to more of a warehousing or medical tick box approach didn't actually succeed in any way. So we're introducing a bit of risk back into the environment. So gardening, cooking, participating in activities of daily living, making sure that people have that sense of personhood. If they're able to um, change their doorways to make their doorways look like their old doorways, really involving uh, a lot of communication. So talking with older adults and getting them engaged in activities, that has been a huge piece. But always, always keeping that sense of connection as the most important thing, even above that very medicalized model that we're so used to today. Laura, I want to bring into the conversation, uh, you out there, if you're listening, if you've been touched or had a nursing home experience as part of your life, and I can pretty well guarantee that if you are a Zoomer, you have visited a parent, uh, an older relative, maybe even on a regular basis at a nursing home or retirement retirement home, you know what that experience feels like. What about that experience for you uh, has made you feel good or in many cases has made you feel quite badly about how your elder res- uh, family member is being treated? Did did you try to evoke change? I know with my husband, uh, when, when his mother, who had Alzheimer's, advanced Alzheimer's in the end at a nursing home, he would, like you mentioned, Laura, decorate her door, uh, depending on the season, you know, for Valentine's Day, for Mother's Day, and even just that little bit of warmth, bringing in some pictures from her walls at home. Home, making her feel a little bit to that connection at home and how much that can mean. So you can imagine if the entire staff took uh, that role 
and and tried to emulate it in the entire center, how that would positively affect change. Your calls welcome 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I think Pat in Toronto has a good question for you, Laura. Go ahead, Pat. Yeah, the real question, and, and both my parents were in long-term care, um, and, and we paid for it. And the question is, uh, who is going to pay for all of this? I mean, we've got a huge number of people, myself included, I'm age 74, who at some point will need this. Uh, are we expecting that the taxpayers should pay for all of this? I mean, that's, that's the basic question. I don't think we should expect the taxpayers to pay for all of this. Well, then that is among the questions I wanted to ask Laura as well. So thanks for calling in, Pat. What about the additional time, staff and funding that may or may not be required for this? Well, Pat, I'm happy to tell you that emotion-based care tends to be much less expensive. And so we're looking actually at a net savings. I'm sorry. I'm an accountant. I don't agree with you. (laughs) Okay. Well, hang on for just a sec, Pat. Let's let Laura answer. So... There is, a, as an accountant, you'll know, sometimes there's a bit of an upfront cost, but you're looking at savings in the short, medium, and long term. So moving to emotion-based care, moving to a butterfly model or an Eden model has been um, looked at across Canada and internationally. So there's excellent financial evidence to support this. So I'm, I'm actually not kind of just talking off the top of my head. We have really good evidence to support the savings that get made. So yes, typically there's an investment up front. Um, we've looked at as much as $100,000. Now that's a drop in the bucket if you're thinking about what we're spending in terms of long-term care and long-term care homes. But what we see in the short, immediate, and long term is uh, the staff turnover reduces sharply, that the care provision is done in a way which is safer. So there's safety costs uh, that are saved as well. There are significant savings in terms of internal administration, and there are otherwise saving costs that make up for itself within a very short period of time. So are we looking at a little bit more in the very short term? Yes, I think that's right. But we can see that in the short, medium, and long term, it really will pay off. So will it mean uh, more bodies, more bodies of staff? Because I'm sure if you talk to personal support workers or others who work in, in long-term care, they barely have time to get their jobs done, let alone sit down and have that uh, human connection with the residents. You know, staffing is a huge piece, and I don't think that you can really talk to anybody, whether they be physicians, residents, nurses, personal support workers, or people with lived experience, either in long-term care or their families. I don't know that anyone would say, we don't need more staff in long-term care. We know we do. The Personal Support Workers uh, Association is recommending a one-to-eight ratio, but there's no regulation in that ratio. And what we're seeing is many personal support workers are having to help 1 to 12 or more. We even see long-term care homes sometimes being forced to pull people who don't have PSW training just to help out. So we're seeing people being pulled from cafeterias and janitors in order to help. So we know we need more bodies. We need more care workers. Um, will the butterfly model require that? It does have recommendations for uh, more administration. And, and what about that. training of the staff for the model? And, that That's true. There is that, that's that insane upfront is that the cost that I yes. was speaking to is about $100,000. And that's usually considered adequate in terms of covering the costs and, and training. When it comes to the actual number of 
people there. That's going to be a decision home by home. But as I say, there were recommendations for motion bank care that there be more staff. Having said that, savings will be made on the back end. Explain for us, and uh, we know that one of the nursing homes in Peel region, Peel's Malton Village, the Redstone Dementia Unit, they tried a one-year pilot project implementing the butterfly model. What did that dementia unit look and feel like before, and what did it look like during and after the one-year model? It was astonishing. And that's why they call it a transformative model of care. When you went in before into that particular long-term care home, it really was very sterile walls, very medically based. People were in uniforms. There was a lot of warehousing of older adults, people left in wheelchairs or other chairs who they wouldn't be able to get up out of those chairs. A lot of extremely bored people. Many people who had cognitive impairment were lashing out because of behavioral responses and very weary, downtrodden staff. It was not a good environment. But this is a home that had a lot of leadership and they wanted to change. Let me tell you what it looks like now. The walls are colorful. The staff are connected to the residents. The residents are alive and engaged. It doesn't mean that they got better necessarily. Their dementia didn't go away. But the quality of life, both for residents and staff, have been shockingly changed for the better. Well, it sounds like it would just be more fun for everyone. It is more fun for everyone. And people have meaning. And it really goes back to the idea of quality of life. You know, we don't have institutions and warehousing as a goal for aging. We have a goal that you live your most independent self with your most personhood and have the most wonderful experiences you can in a place where you get that health and housing connected together. And what we're seeing and what we've been strong advocates for here at CARP is that it can be done. It's been done around the world, and now it's time for Canada to step up and do it. So we're very encouraged to see this big win for the City of Toronto. Sure. What do you think about this as you're listening? It seems like it's just a win-win all the way around. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. If uh, at the end of our lives we do find ourselves in a position where we have to spend time in a nursing home, wouldn't it be something to look forward to rather than to be worried about because we know that they aren't always pleasant places to be. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Dennis and Brampton, go ahead. How would you like to add to the conversation? Thank you for taking my call, Jane. And uh, actually, your your guest did mention the, uh, the region of Peel. And uh, I've had experience with Peel Manor, one of the homes in the region of Peel, uh, on two, uh, for two of um, family members. And uh, the point I want to make is uh, what's interesting about the region of Peel are, it, they are these are not-for-profit nursing homes. And generally speaking, and we did we did look at them all when the time came, and uh, their model and their setup was the best because at the end of the day. There's no overhead and profit. There's more money going into patient care. Right. The um, the earlier caller raised a fundamental question in my mind about who should pay for this, and uh, I don't. Long term care is not a choice for many people, and nor is acute care. Uh, I just see them as part of a uh, of a continuum of health as we uh, are born and as we age. 
And uh, as we know, Medicare is is funded as long-term care ought to be as well. I'm, I'm very concerned about the direction the current government is going, uh, which is leaning more and more towards privatization. And uh, that's a, a real concern for me. I think we should be going the other direction and looking at the not-for-profit model. And those are my comments. Okay, thank you very much for calling in, Dennis. Uh, Laura, your comments to what uh, Dennis is saying. Uh, there's a lot of people who have seen that not-for-profit homes may have some better outcomes and results than for-profit homes. There's a lot of uh, query in that area, but certainly um, there can be different goals at play. Not to say that for-profit homes are are all bad. They're certainly not, but there are some indicators that not-for-profit homes perhaps are a bit better in some instances. And the butterfly model and emotion based care has been more adopted by the not-for-profit homes. What I would offer is long-term care is part of the continuum of care. And right now, part of it, it can be subsidized by government. And then there's additional pieces that can be subsidized uh, privately. But at least in Canada, we have the right to long-term care. Let's go to the phones again. Wendell in Hamilton. Go ahead. You're on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Just turn your radio down. Okay. Can you hear me? I can. Go ahead. Hello? Yep. Go ahead, Wendell. Hello. Hi, Wendell. Oh, there you are. <laughs> yes, I'm here and you're there, so go ahead. I turned my phone down instead of my radio. <laughs> uh, so the, the point I want to make is, um, like, I'm a former pastor and I spent a lot of time in nursing home caring for people, visiting people. Um, I still think one of the best places that we can have our elderly citizens or elderly people stay is is in the homes of their children. And I don't think the government does enough to... Uh, facilitate that. And I'll give you an example. My mother-in-law is 89 years old. Uh, the family was considering putting her in a home, and we thought, well, the best place for her to stay, she just, my mother-in-law is a sweetheart, by the way, would, would be to stay with us. And so we did that. Works out great. She loved it. We love it. But I wonder why the government doesn't do more to help that sort of a situation. So we get a tax credit to help my mother-in-law stay, because my mother-in-law stays with us. But it, it equates to cash in pocket, about $100 a month. So very little. So, uh, I mean, we don't do it for the money. No, Obviously, of course. We don't, of we don't course. do it for the tax credit. But that's one of my, you know, I, I and I realize that that's not everybody's situation. That right. they can have their mother or father stay with them. But I think that would, for those who are able to, that helps offload the situation in the nursing homes, and I think the government should do more to help uh, the to help the elderly stay in homes. Wendell, we couldn't agree with you more. Here at CARP, as part of our national seniors platform called the Faces of Canadian Seniors, which I hope people have a chance to look on, you'll see both that we're advocating for increased long-term care as well as increased home care. And for those people who may have family or friends like yourself to have an opportunity to live with somebody else, which, as you say, doesn't suit for everybody, but for those folks, that there should be increased caregiver tax credits. So some of our advocacy is focused around increasing tax credits and making them refundable tax credits. So for those of you doing taxes this time of year, you may see that your very minimal caregiver tax credits, which we would like to increase, which comes out to you know, between about 3500 and almost $4,000 a year, which is not a lot cash in pocket, as you say, you still have to go out into the marketplace and earn that money 
in order to get that money back. Well, so many caregivers, of course, are not necessarily in the open marketplace. So we want to make that a refundable tax credit. So, Wendell, I couldn't agree with you more. Wendell, thanks for calling in. And it's great you get along with your (laughs) mother-in-law. Thank you. We'll take one more call before we wrap up this segment and move on to public health. Orst in Toronto, go ahead. You're on Fight Back. Orst, go ahead. Hi, go ahead. You're up here Uh, next. Well, considering this subject... You know, I'm 75 years of age. The last thing I want to do is get dementia or Alzheimer's. Yes. Why can't I make a deal with somebody? Just kill me. <laughs> I've had mornings like that too, Wendell. So what I would offer is assisted living and assisted dying are both important things. And what we're talking here is assisted living. So how is it that we can support people to live their very best selves? What we also know is that people do a very poor job, and lots of studies show this, imagining how it would feel like if you had a disability or what you would feel like if you had dementia. So I will offer that there's actually more hope than you might imagine off the top. And the second piece is we are advocating to make sure that end-of-life supports, whether it be hospice supports or, in some cases, medical assistance in dying, are available to those who qualify for it in the places of their choice. So, assisted living and assisted dying. And in the nicest possible way. Laura, thank you so much uh, for joining us and uh, great work, as always, on behalf of CARP in in making life better for people in nursing homes. Thanks very much. CARP.ca if you'd like more information. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.